invite your attention this morning to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. And the title of our message today is called Gospel-Centered Ministry. I don't often do this, uh, but it's a very special day. Uh, Lauren, I, I, Lauren and Maisel, I know you don't want me to embarrass you in this way, but it shouldn't be an embarrassment. It's an encouragement. 60 years of marriage today. Uh, praise the Lord. Amen. So, Lauren, since you've heard 60 years or more sermons, I think you should get up here and give the sermon today. I think that's fair and just. So, But congratulations. I know you have a lot of family here, and uh, we're grateful to have you in service, and thank you for uh, being part of our congregation. Congratulations. God is faithful. Amen. God is faithful. Well, today we're going to talk about that, that phrase we keep going over, gospel-centered. Some of you are maybe sick of that phrase or ready to move on from that phrase. But that's going to be where we're at today, the book of Philippians. And as any good pastor would, there's a good marriage story, and it's not my marriage story, but I have plenty of those. actually comes from an old dead guy named Martin Luther. Has anyone ever heard of him before? Not Martin Luther King. He had his own good thing, but Martin Luther the Reformer. Martin Luther was given a great task in the 1500s. He was breaking away from the Church of Roman Catholicism, and it was much needed. They needed to do that, and he was a leader of a movement he didn't often know he was a leader of. And at that time, he was overwhelmed with bouts of depression, gloom, and despair. And the joy of the Lord often evaded him. He wasn't happy. He was very gloomy. So his wife, Kate, who is mentioned uh, right next to him in the picture behind you, uh, dressed up in all black and paraded around the house all day in her best black attire. And he looked at her in his German accent and said, who died? She said, well, God died. And he said, well, don't ever say that. How dare you say that? And as any good, wise wife would, she looked at him and said, Martin, then don't live that way if God hasn't died. Ooh, then that cuts your, all the ladies are shaking their heads and all the guys are saying, woo, wise wife. But isn't that the case with most of us today that it's a message to us to remember that even in our hardest times that God is on his throne and he is reigning. As long as God is on his throne, that great Bible verse from Romans 8.28 comes true. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? Amen. But no matter when we face tough times, we may have joy in our hearts in our darkest hours because God is on his throne. Ecclesiastes 11, uh, 7 verse 14 says this. It says, enjoy prosperity while you can. But when hard times strike, realize that both come from God, both the hard times and the good times. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. That is the sweet sovereignty of God, isn't it? That even in the hardest of times, you can have joy unspeakable. You can become so obsessed with trying to find false things in this life that you miss the very good things that God gives you. Ever been there before? And sometimes we need to remember that the reason we rejoice is that God really is working all things for our good according to his plan and his purpose. And that's what Philippians is all about. Philippians is the book of joy. It's a happy book. It's a sad book in a lot of ways, but it's the book of joy. Paul gives them the instruction about joy, what it is, how to find it, how to live it out. It's all about joy everywhere. And Paul's own life is a testimony of that joy. Paul lived in some very tough circumstances, but he talks the talk and he walks the walk. But how do we in 21st century America live like that? How do we have joy unspeakable when things aren't going our way? 
What was it that was so strong in the heart of Paul that allowed him to have joy that even though he was in prison, he was being beaten, he was away from his churches, how could he have that joy when he was pulled down? What enabled him to live that life of joy? Friends, we desperately need joy today, don't we? Not just happy clappiness, but we need the joy of the Lord. We're too often subject to the circumstances around us more than trusting in the Lord that is above all those circumstances. So, so many times we fail to, to live in the moment for God because we fear that the joy of the Lord is not something we can have. So, the big idea today is something that I'll say is this, is adversity, that big uh, $20 word, that the hard times. The adversity that you face as a church revives the church while prosperity ruins her, ruins the church. And we often most grow spiritually when we are going through adversity rather than prosperity, through trials rather than triumphs. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? You often gain more wisdom when things are hard than when things are easy. But God's main purpose in the hard times, the adverse, the trials, the temptations, is to make us trust Him and not ourselves. Isaiah verse 30, Isaiah 30 verse 20 says, Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your eyes shall see your teacher. Friends, to know that God is sovereign, to know He's in control, is to be like a mighty oak tree in a hurricane, firmly rooted on something other than yourselves. That's why another guy, Samuel Rutherford, said this. He said, grace withers without trials. The devil is God's master fencer. He uses him to teach us how to handle our spiritual weapons properly. And so today, we're going to see Paul in a pretty tough spot. He's in jail. He's writing from jail, 800 miles away from the church he's writing to at Philippi. But he gives us three things we need to know today. Three things that you can have joy in as you go through. It, we'll call it gospel-centered ministry, but it's really about finding joy in whatever stage of life you're in. We're going to see Paul's circumstances. There are some tough circumstances. We're going to see Paul's challenges. It gets worse as it goes along. But we're going to see, just like Psalm 62 that Mark read for us, it starts really low, but it ends on a high note because Paul has confidence in someone, and that is Christ himself. So what is the secret to Paul's joy? Friends, there is no secret. I wish I could sell you a 1995 late-night infomercial that you could sign up for and just give you the secret to joy. But Paul makes it known in the text we're going to read that the source of his joy is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is his motivation. As he sees the gospel spreading through hard times, Paul gets really excited. I'm sure right now in Russia with Luke as we're praying for him, as even if they're hitting a roadblock, they're still praising God that they have the opportunity to be at that roadblock. And you know that in the first chapter alone, Paul says the name Jesus Christ at least 18 times. That's a lot. He says at least 18 times. And if we're going to have joy, we must be Christ-centered, Christ-saturated, and Christ-dominated. But he also says that word gospel six times. The secret of Paul's joy is that he knows Christ, he talks about him, he loves him, he prays to him, but he also talks about that gospel all the time. And there's a, that word joy is used four times in the first chapter. And when we connect those dots, the gospel, Christ, and joy, it becomes clear why Paul had much joy. Paul's joy was not attached to his identity, because doesn't that change a lot? Especially if you have social media, you change your profile picture every day. Some of you do. 
But his joy was not based on what people thought of him, how favorable the weather was, or what people might say to him the next day. His joy was founded in what Christ did. He finished the work of salvation. That's the gospel. And therefore, he can have joy. Adversity, trials, the hard times of life are the greatest evangelists you can have in your life. Share the gospel, but use the hard times as a springboard to that end. Friends, today, this is what we're going to see as we do this. So in honor of God's word, if you are able, and I say that because I know some, it's hard. If you are able to stand, let's read God's word this morning as we go before Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. We'll continue our trek through the gospel-centered joy, gospel-centered ministry with Paul. I'll be reading today out of the New American Standard Version. Paul says, now I want you to know, brothers, that the circumstances, my circumstances, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And the most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Verse 15, some to be sure though are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and yes, in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Love that verse. If you're a highlighter, that is a perfectly good verse to highlight. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And next week, we're going to camp out in verse 21. Many of you have memorized, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But today, three things of gospel-centered ministry, gospel-centered joy. How do you find joy in the most tough, adverse trials of life? Let's go before the Lord in prayer today. Father, we are so very grateful that we have the opportunity to be here, Lord. It's so good to see a lot of faces that were traveling last week to see family and friends and just take a break with the holiday. Father, thank you for bringing Deb back from overseas. Father, thank you for the blessing of being able to pray for so many things and so many people. But Lord, as we enter your word, we pray for divine wisdom to know. Father, we pray, as the old people said, the unction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give us great discernment as we read your word. Not my words, but Lord, your word coming forth. Father, if there's any among us that knows not Jesus Christ, we pray that by your spirit they would know you and be quickened unto salvation. Father, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, it's a very interesting thing for Paul here because Paul is in a very difficult spot. He's in prison. He's in a very difficult spot. The hard times are before him. His circumstances couldn't have been any worse, but his confidence couldn't have been any greater. The outlook was awful, but the uplook was really good and great. That's what I'll say. I want to know you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's starting a whole new chapter. Many of you have a chapter heading at the top. It's a new section of the Bible. The section headings are not inspired, but God's word is. But Paul's basically saying to them, I really need you to get this. I really need you to understand what I'm about to tell you. 
But you know we've talked about the last few weeks about the tender affection of Paul. Notice he doesn't just say, hey, you, or hey, you guys, or hey, y'all. He says, brothers and sisters. You like my southern accent, I know. But he says, I want you to know about my circumstances. He's talking about his imprisonment. If you look at verse 13, verse 14, and verse 17, it's all about him being in prison. And it's no denial on his part about being in prison. He's not proud of being in prison, but he knows that is where his circumstances are where God has put him. From a a human standpoint, though, he's in a dire and dreadful situation. But from God's standpoint, an eternal standpoint, his vision is one that is really serving to advance the gospel. Not just small progress, but Paul says it has advanced the gospel far out. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he's not praying for his own safety, his own wishes. He's not praying for his own comfort or his own creature comforts. He is praying that God would use his chains, his 18 inches from the guard chains, to progress the gospel. These are unique circumstances for Paul. He says, he says that the gospel has advanced or progressed. That word for advanced or progressed is like a pioneer. Uh, we live in Independence, Missouri. Uh, we have the, the trail that started there, the Oregon Trail, all that sort of thing. Those were pioneers that went west 150 years ago. Well, Paul is a pioneer for God in the sense that his imprisonment is a launching pad for the gospel. The gospel is going places it has never gone before because Paul is in one of the most difficult situations anyone could ask. Paul is in his first imprisonment in Rome. He's been there at least two years that we know of. He'll be released and go back another six years later. But I want you to flip over with me just quickly. Hold your spot in Philippians and flip over to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy if you will. I want to show you something about Paul's perspective as he goes forward. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Folks, God's word can never be chained. Don't let your government tell you that. Don't let your people tell you that. God's word is not chained. For this reason, Paul says, verse 10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen or the elect, so they may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ, which is it in eternal glory. can flip back over to, uh, to Philippians. Why do I bring that section up? Well, I want you to know that Paul is teaching us a great thing here. The great thing, the first point I want you to get is the more the Christian is persecuted, the further the gospel will go. The more the Christian is persecuted, the further the gospel will go. Christians rise on the wing of opposition. They used to say in church history that the blood of the martyrs, the blood of those who die for Christ, is the seed of the church. Paul says in 2 Timothy, when he's writing this, that the doctrine of predestination or election, whew, that's a... That's a full doctrine right there. We believe it as Baptists, Baptist faith and message, that God has chosen before the foundation of the world his elect, and the elect will be gloriously and triumphantly saved. Christ died for them. The Holy Spirit calls them. The Holy Spirit convicts them and regenerates them. Paul endures all things in prison, folks. He goes through the most hard times in prison Because he knows there are people out there who do not know Jesus Christ, who aren't saved, but by God's grace and sovereign call, someday will. 
Is that how we look at our circumstances? Isn't that a world of difference? This is the Apostle Paul, yeah. But isn't that interesting that when I go through a hard time, the last thing usually on my mind is, God, how is this to glorify you and advance your kingdom? But Paul is so unstoppable because his message is so unstoppable because it comes from an unstoppable, indomitable God. And that is the God we serve. Friends, never think that the time you share the gospel, that God won't use that to bring about his glory. So whether Paul's in prison, he's out of prison, whether he has a big TV ministry, whether he's on the street corner, God is using Paul's hardest circumstances to turn the gospel over to people. Isn't that amazing? That God can use your hardest times to be the best times that God would ever bring people into your life to hear the gospel. But he goes on in verse 13. He says, So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment in Christ. Again, that word imprisonment is used in three verses that we see. And it's a context for Paul. Paul is not just a prisoner of Rome. If you remember and you look back at verse 1 of this chapter, who does he say he's a slave of, a prisoner of? He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that change the perspective when Christ is thrown in the mix? It changes everything. But Paul doesn't just see himself as a prisoner. Did you, I, your Bible may not have this, but in the Greek, he's a prisoner literally because of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And what that means is Paul's basically saying, I'm imprisoned by God's divine appointment. I'm imprisoned as an ambassador of Christ. I'm here by God's plan for me. Turn on Joel Osteen, you won't hear that. God's best plan is not your health, not your wealth, and not your prosperity. God's best plan sometimes for you folks is change with the gospel going forward. The most elite group of Roman soldiers were guarding him too. These were the FBI. These were the Secret Service. These were the Green Berets all rolled up into one. A select 9,000 soldiers. They're called the Praetorian Guard. And they were the ones that were hand-picked by Caesar himself. And at any time for two years, we know from Acts, Paul is chained within 18 inches of these people. These are the ones that spend 12 years of their life serving Caesar. And their work is so intense as military people that after that, they are literally given land, titles, and money. And the question mark is if they survive. These are some hardcore soldiers. They have the highest honor and privilege. But did you see what Paul said? Paul said in verse 13, because of his hard circumstances, the gospel has become well known. Wow. Friends, this is another thing I want you to get, is that persecution has never hurt the church, only prosperity. Persecution has never hurt the church, only prosperity. Please hear me clearly. It's not bad for us to have a building. It's not bad for us to have money in a bank account as a church. It's not bad to pay people full time. It's not bad to do those things. But what happens is eventually if we get so prosperous, we lose focus, don't we? I want you to flip over to chapter 4 and verse 22, and I want to show you something neat. Philippians 4, 22. Paul is chained to these people. He's chained to them literally, and verse four, chapter 4, verse 22 has a unique insight into the ministry of Paul and the circumstances. It says, and all the saints greet you, Philippians, especially those of Caesar's household. Wow. The most hardened soldiers of the time are coming to know Jesus Christ. The gospel is exploding like dynamite inside of Caesar's household. Friends, that's exciting because God is taking these soft heart, these hard-hearted people and melting down their hard heart to receive the gospel. 
That's what Paul prayed. Paul knew that was his ministry, God's sovereign call. But notice it's not just the guards. In verse 13, it goes on, it says, um, it's become so well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, literally all the rest. Paul is not just getting inside Caesar's household. People are not just coming to know inside Caesar's place. It's out in the streets. The average person on the street is talking about what Paul and this gospel is about. Did you hear about that weird guy who thinks there's a dead guy that came back? Jesus is his name. What kind of Jewish weirdness is this? But this is spreading around because Paul is always talking about Christ. These guards would rotate out 24-7, 365. And Paul just sees it as another opportunity to share. Hey, great, another guy's coming, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, great, another guy's coming, let me tell you about Jesus. He probably drove these guys mad. <laughs> and this is spreading to everyone, but the more they put, try to put the flame out, it's like they put it on with more gasoline. It just <laughs> lights up all the more. You know, Paul had rented a quarters in Acts 28. We know he rented some, a house there. And friends, what is your quarter? What is the house, so to speak, that God has given you, your section of life? Is it your job, your children? Is it uh, you're, you're a salesperson, you're tied to your desk or your sales route? You're a factory worker and you're on your assembly line all day. What is it that God has given you in your daily life that you can use, like Paul, 18 inches away from a guard, to show forth the gospel? Paul used every chance he could get to share about Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 14. He says, and most of the brothers have become confident because of this. He says, it's more than a few. They had already had some degree of courage, but because of Paul's chains and hard circumstances, they now are even more bold to share the gospel. Not just to live a better life, folks, but to share the gospel. And I think that's what he's saying. He says, they speak the word without fear. He's speaking about the name of Christ, that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, by his grace alone. And because of Paul's boldness, there's now many people talking about Christ and many people sharing Christ. It's quite a shadow to cast, isn't it? But one person set on fire from Jesus Christ can imbue or set more people on fire by God's grace. Happened with Paul. Happened with John Knox, that guy in England who translated the Bible from Latin into English. It happened to Martin Luther in Germany. Happened to Spurgeon in England. It happened that one man on fire has the capacity by God's grace to put steel into the backbone of believers everywhere. God can use you, folks, no matter what. And this is what I want you to also get. That the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, makes us bold and courageous not as people pleasers or men pleasers, but as God pleasers. And that's what I want you to see. If Paul had not been in prison, Herod's household, if I can use the phrase, is a hellhole. It is what it was before. If there's no imprisonment, not one person on the streets hears about Jesus Christ. But because of Paul's imprisonment, the elite of the elite are one to Christ. Because of Paul's imprisonment, it is spread through Caesar's household. The word is on the streets. If we were there, we might have said, Paul, you missed, your, you missed God's will for your life. What are you doing in prison, Paul? Why did you let, if you wouldn't have just spoken up, but what are you doing? But friends, it was God's will that Paul would go to prison so that the message might go forward. The more the world tries to resist the gospel, the more they fan the flame of leaping fire to spread more and more and more. Are you content in your life today that whatever circumstance you are, maybe you're not as fast as you used to, maybe you're not as strong, hopefully you're wiser than you used to be, 
Amen? Are you still with me? Some of you, that took a minute to sink in. But I pray wherever you are at, that you let God use your circumstances. Maybe you don't like your job. Maybe, maybe God's put you in that job so you can speak to your coworkers. Maybe there's a hard home situation. I don't know. Let God use you as Paul was used in that sense. So there's circumstances. Notice, secondly, Paul has some major, major challenges. The challenges is always the same. He says in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. I want to be very clear about these people who are speaking against Paul. These are not Joel Osteens or Joyce Myers or T.D. Jakes, the false teachers. These are ministers of the gospel. These are people who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but they don't like Paul. Why don't they like Paul? Well, Paul has become the celebrity preacher. Paul's the one. He has all the authority. He has all the, the charismatic uh, giftings. He has all the things, but they are jealous of him because their little church in their house, the attention has been called away from their pulpit to the pulpit of Paul inside prison. Now, I know none of you have ever been jealous before, right? But these are not false teachers. They are preaching Christ. They are sharing Christ. They are doing everything for Christ. Their gospel, their message, their emphasis, and their method are correct, but their motives are completely wrong. But they are envious. Some of them are. They're envious because Paul has the right message and the right motivation. And they have the right message, but Paul's called out the wrong motivation. You know, and that's sometimes how it is in the church, isn't it? Sometimes you feel like God has called you to do something and, and someone else gets asked to teach that, that class or, or to sing that song or to serve in that capacity. Someone else is asked to do something in the church where inside you're, you're like, yes, I'm glad to see that person doing this, but inside you feel so torn up. Rather than being content with where you are and what you have and rejoicing that another person has been elevated, the envy has been sown into your heart. That's where these preachers were. Paul had some serious challenges. But friends, I want to get this message, this point across. The Bible presents God not simply as a passive creator, but as a jealous lover. And he wants every part of us. You know, Oprah once said that she stopped believing in God because she, he, she believed that God was a jealous God. Well, how can God be jealous? Friends, God's our creator. He wants every single part of us. And God is so jealous for you that he gave his son to you that if you would only believe in him, that you would have eternal life. But Paul says, not only are they envious, man, there's some strife going on. There's some strife going on. These preachers have started divisions in the church. Can you hear, can you hear them talking to themselves? Have you heard about Paul? Maybe even the reason Paul's in prison is because God is mad with him. Did you think about that? Can you imagine these conversations going on for these other preachers? Isn't it amazing how gullible people are to buy into gossip? Friends, one thing I want to establish at this church is that you go to the source. Before you say, oh, did you hear about, talk to the person. Before you say, oh, I heard that, uh, that Joe Bob is doing this. Well, have you talked to Joe Bob? Well, I heard that Billy Sue, is that even possible? Billy Sue, you know, before you go down that road, take a chapter out of this verse and see that it's a sad day that when a preacher or church members start pulling things out of thin air that are not true, it speaks of our depravity and how corrupt we are as a heart. Even, even in Christ, we can send that bad. But isn't there always good out of bad? Doesn't God do that? He says, look down at the verse again. He says, some have preached out of good will. 
These are brothers that are there for Paul. They've chosen to take the high road and preach Christ to say, I don't know why God has Paul in prison, but I'm going to use that as a springboard for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, love and envy cannot dwell in the same heart at the same time. When envy moves in, love moves out. Only when Christ is reigning in a heart does love dwell there. And what a great witness it is that when Tower View Baptist Church comes together, not because we're all the same, you've heard me say that so much the last few weeks, but because the gospel unifies us. You know, it's often been said, there's a quote, maybe you've heard this before, that the Christian army is the only army that shoots one of its own soldiers. You ever heard that before, some of you? What that means is that sometimes as Christians, we're so polite and so happy, but all of a sudden we take them out and we shoot them in the back and when they're not listening or they're not around. Church, be careful about the gossip that happens. But did you notice why Paul said he was in there? He was in prison for this one reason. Look at verse 16. He's in prison because I have been appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul didn't self-appoint himself. If you remember, Paul was going to kill Christians, wasn't he? And God, by his divine sovereign decree, knocked him off that horse, spoke into his life, blinded him in Acts 9, and told him he's not going to be a preacher of, against Christians. He's going to be a Christian. And how much you must suffer for my name. Friends, Paul has been established by God in that position. You see why I'm saying over and over that the position you're in, sometimes we work so hard to get out of the position we're in that we'll do anything. We'll apply to 5,000 jobs. We'll go talk to anyone. Maybe I can get a connection on LinkedIn. Maybe if I just talk to this person, say the right thing, do the right thing, it's all going to work out. Have you thought how God might use you right here, right now, where you are? That's where Paul was. But one thing I want to say about this is this. Presuming motives is one of our greatest sins. Presuming motives is one of our greatest sins sins. Friends, Paul was there for a reason, wasn't he? He was there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you look around this church, don't just say, man, I think that person is doing this, that, and the other. Have you talked to that person? Presuming motives can be one of our greatest sins. Three times Paul has said, Christ is being preached. Christ is being preached. Christ is being preached. Some are doing it sincerely out of love. Some are doing it out of selfish ambition, but What is Paul's goal? That Christ is being preached. Here Paul says that some are slandering his character, discrediting his motives. They are trying to gain back the people that are following him. Look at verse 17. He says, the former, those are the bad ones, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress. They've shamed his character. They've drug it through the mud. They've lost people to him. They've caused him great stress. And yet what Paul says is that God has put me here for that reason. Wow. If I could have that attitude through every hard time in my life. God, I don't know what people are saying about me. I don't know. But what I know is that Christ is being proclaimed. Wow. You know, we're not removed from difficulty of life. Some of you I know in here have families that have gone through some major medical things in the last month. Some of you have lost jobs, gone through divorce. Some of you are torn up over the unconverted state of your family. Maybe there's a family there you've prayed for for years. There's cancer. But in all these things, what does Paul say in verse 18? Did you notice this? Look at verse 18 again. What then? In other words, what effect does this have on on me? What then? Only that in every way, literally in every path, 
that as long as Christ is proclaimed, whether in pretense or truth, in this I rejoice. Yes, I still rejoice. Paul doesn't care if these preachers are putting on a false mask. Paul doesn't care if these preachers are doing the right thing. What he cares about is that Christ is proclaimed. Can I ask you this question? Do you rejoice in your suffering for the gospel's advancement? Whatever hard times you're facing, maybe it's arthritis, maybe it's, maybe it's whatever it is, are you trusting that God will use that to bring people to know Jesus Christ? That's where Paul's heart is at. And we must keep living that truth out. Because what Paul says over and over, he says, I rejoice. Not just I rejoice one time, hey, that's good, but yes, I will rejoice. You can see Paul telling himself, Paul, you're going to rejoice. And then the bad thoughts start coming. He says, no, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to do this. I'm going to rejoice. Do you rejoice in your health issues at home, your relational issues, your family issues, your career issues? What is it that pulled Paul up? To find the joy, it's the fact that through all this bad stuff, Christ is proclaimed. Some of you have jobs right now that are literally driving you insane and are making you very unhealthy. I'm not saying you should just stay in that to just grit it out John Wayne style. What I am saying, though, is that can you see through the eyes of faith how God is actively working in your circumstance to spread the gospel? Maybe you've lost a loved one. That's an opportunity. We had a, a major uh, preacher in my life, Brother Harry Clifton, uh, was a pastor for over, literally, guys, over 70 years of his life. Knew him for many, many years. Passed away. His funeral was on Friday night. Got to share the gospel. Maybe it's a trip to a doctor and you tell a neighbor, I'm going to pray, pray for me, I'll pray for you. Maybe you're married to an unbeliever and it's a great stress that you're unequally yoked, but it's an opportunity for the gospel to go forward. You, if you're a Christian, are an ambassador for Christ. I am an ambassador for Christ. Let's rejoice that God has placed us where he has. Amen? Amen. That was a quiet amen. Falling asleep or uh, we'll work on that. Last point is this. Friends, Paul had circumstances that challenged him. He had challenges nonetheless. But Paul got some great confidence in verses 19 through 20. Rooted and grounded in a deep confidence is the Lord's sovereign purpose of his life. Let me just say this right off the bat. If you do not believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of every detail, every atom, everything you can see and not see, then you diminish your joy factor at least 50% right off the start. How would you like to buy a house and it decreases and depreciates in value 50% right off the start? Many of you would not be living in that house. Friends, you have far less to be joyful if you don't hold to the supreme ruling of God over all things. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, I keep saying that name, read him, you're going to grow, you're going to be challenged, read this guy. The sovereignty of God, he said, is the pillow on which I lay my head at night. It brings joy to know that the storms of life are overruled by God. Many of you remember the story when they were in the boat with Jesus and the disciples, and what did Jesus say? He said, they were all, they were, we're going to die, we're going to die, Jesus is sleeping, and he just stands up and says, peace be still, and boom, it stops. If God can stop the physical storm, then what can he do in your life today? Paul says in verse 18, he says, or verse 19, he says, I know this. Notice he doesn't say, I feel, I hope so. He says, I know. It's a bedrock assurity rooted and grounded in the convictions he has about God, Jesus Christ, and his gospel. He knows what? He knows this. He knows he's going to stand before Caesar someday. Either he's going to be killed, quite honestly, or he's going to be released. 
I'm going to give you a little preview. I'm going to give you that sneak peek. He does get released, but eventually he does die at the hand of Nero later on. But one way or another, God is going to work it out. But did you see the two ways that Paul says in verse 19 quickly that he is going to get this worked out? It says, through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Guys, God works through means, doesn't he? God works through everyday means and channels. First thing I want you to see is the prayer of the Philippians. Paul knows that if God is, God's will is going to work out, it's because the prayers of his people. You know, sometimes people say to me, Darren, if God is ruling over all things and knows what I need before I ask, then why would I pray? In other words, if God is sovereign, why pray? Ever had that thought or question? It's a good question. Here's a better question. If God is not ruling over all things seen and unseen, why pray? Think about that. If God can't rule over everything, you have no reason to pray. You can just go talk to your tax advisor because your tax advisor is going to give you the same advice to some degree. God would be the last person to talk to if he's not in control, folks. But God is in control. That's why we pray, and he does make a difference. Nothing is impossible with him. That's why we have confidence to pray. That's why Paul prayed for the, uh, the Philippians the last few weeks, and they're praying for him. It's as Paul's down in the well, and their prayers are like the rope that holds him up. They are holding him up in prayer. Don't ever think that you can't pray and trust God. God is going to work all things out, but God practically wants you to pray to get to know him. See, Darren, how's that work? God knows all the things, and I'm supposed to pray. Friends, there are great mysteries in Scripture that sometimes we are not going to solve this point of life. If you go to our blog, we, we're answering questions for you on our, our website, Tower View KC. We talked about the Trinity. God is three in one. It's a great mystery of the faith, but the Bible doesn't say we believe in three gods. It says we believe in one in three persons, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But are you praying and trusting that God is in control of all things? But how else is Paul going to receive this joy? Through the Spirit of Christ. Oh boy, the red-headed stepchild in most uh, Baptist churches, the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Paul's praying as a reference to the Holy Spirit because he knows that the daily power you have to have joy in your life is only through the power of the Spirit. He has more supply than our need. The Holy Spirit's power is like trying to pour the Atlantic Ocean into a thimble, if I can use that extreme example. God is more able to sustain us in the midst of our difficulties. But what is Paul praying for? Look at verse 20 as we uh, start to head home and land this plane. He says that according to my earnest expectation and hope, Paul's prayer, his hope, his joy is a very technical Greek word. It means to stretch your neck forward in a forward-looking way. He's basically saying he's looking forward to being released, but it's not just I hope so or, man, I wish this would work out or if I just give it a good old college try. Paul's confident that God himself will take him through the circumstances and challenges. But friends, your confidence is in that God holds the future and works all things out for your life. Amen? Paul's joy is based on the fact that God is sovereign and that he's in control of his life. Not just his life, but all the Roman guards. So how's, how's God in charge of the Roman people? Go read Romans 13. No one who's put in office is there unless God in his divine plan has put him there. Friends, we can trust God through even the most difficult circumstances. He goes on, we don't have time to hash all this out, but he goes on to say, I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ even now will be exalted in my body. He is saying that everything is about Jesus Christ for himself. 
everything is about Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no joy in your life or mine without a faith and trust and belief in knowing that God is in control and that God will carry out his purposes. It is a joy, isn't it, to know Christ personally, to know him intimately, to know him relationally, to experience his love daily. Here's, here's what I want to get across. One more thing as we, we close this out. Our greatest joy rises above the circumstances because Christ rises above the circumstances. Paul was like Peter. When Peter saw Christ in the Sea of Galilee, Peter walked on water. You remember that? You know, they have an exhibit. If you ever go to the Holy Land, I've never been there, just read about it. They have an exhibit where they made a bridge just barely lower than the water so you can experience what it must have been like for Peter to walk on water. So if you go there, let me know how odd that is. But uh, it, it's just a weird thing. But Paul is like Peter. Peter walked on the water. Peter's eyes were focused on Christ. He called him out in the storm and he said, walk. And Peter walked. And then what, do you remember what it said? Peter looked around and he saw the storms and, and everything. And what happened to Peter after that? fell right in, didn't he? I can't swim, so don't invite me to your swimming party. I'll just stand on the side. And Peter probably couldn't swim either. They didn't run or swim very well, even as a fisherman. But Peter cried out, Lord, save me. Friends, that's the best prayer of the Bible. Three words, Lord, save me. His prayer was that despite his crazy circumstances, that Christ would reach out his hand and save him. And do you remember what happened? Literally, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, reached down, pulled him out, and what happened after that? Everything calmed down. Friends, Paul was in a very tough circumstance, but Paul had heard the story about Peter and the boat. How much more did he trust God with his chains? As I close, let me say this. Do you need to refocus your life on Christ through your circumstances, your situations, your challenges? And do you have the waves of the dark storm that are beginning to make you sink? Friends, you have nothing to hold on to except Jesus Christ. That's why as a church we say that we are gospel-centered because everything goes back to Jesus. You lose Jesus, you lose everything. You don't know who Jesus is, you lose your life eternally and physically. Christ, save me. Lord, save me. If you're not a Christian here today, boy, this is the greatest news you can have. Jesse and Sarah, I saw them here. They're getting married today. I'm going to give them a, that's a great thing. And they are going to get married later today at 5.30. I'll just give the big announcement right here. He's excited. I know he's excited. He's smiling ear to ear back there. But do you know what that marriage is going to picture? Many of you need to know this. That marriage pictures what Christ has done for us, doesn't it? It pictures that once we were far off, but by the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. And it's a union of what's coming. Christ taking his bride together. Some of you are here today and know not Jesus Christ. And you need to pray that God would open your heart. We don't twist arms. We don't make you say special prayers here. We just simply say this, that if you want to believe the gospel, it's that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. That is the gospel. If you don't know that, come talk to us. We'd love to do that. See John in the back. He's back there. He's the other guy in the tie. It's usually in the back. You can talk to him. You can talk to me. Talk to a deacon, your Sunday school teacher. If you don't know Christ, this is it. But if you know Christ... Are you trusting that God will use you right here, right now, in whatever circumstance you're in, to glorify and honor his name? You may start the greatest revival at your workplace or your home simply because you're willing to be content with whatever God throws your way. Isn't God faithful?
Amen. He is. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, you are so good, and this is such a meaty passage, Lord, that it's almost impossible to, uh, to really hash it out in a 41-minute sermon, Lord. But, Father, one thing we do know is that you are faithful and you are good. Father, I don't know all the circumstances surrounding all the people here today, but I know that you are the God of the circumstances, you are the God of the challenges, and you are the God in whom we should have all our confidence in. Father, I would pray very pastorally, very specifically this morning, that Lord, whatever the needs are today, that you, by your divine grace and sovereign call, would give great wisdom and great strength, not just to solve the issue, Lord, that we pray for that provision, but for people to use that time to grow in the character love, and appreciation of what your son has done for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we have a lot of medical needs. There's a lot of needs on our prayer list this week. Be with them. Use them, Lord. Glorify your name through them. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know Jesus Christ, that, Father, thank you that you're the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to you except through your son, that you so love the world that you gave your only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, have everlasting life. Father, work in their hearts. Grow us. Challenge us. May our words be wholesome unto you and in praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you're here this morning,